I, I tend not to show any violence against women. You won't read, pick up one of my books and find a passage of, of great violence for, from someone against a woman. Um, if there is about to be violence, or well, that violence is there as part of the story, either I'll cut away before it starts or you'll hear, well, there was something that happened, but you won't, you won't ever see it because I don't believe in, in sensationalizing violence against vulnerable people that way. Interestingly, the, the big problem that Hitchcock had with the censors in Psycho was he showed a flushing toilet and they didn't, well, they objected to that and said, absolutely no way. Can you show a toilet being flushed? And you didn't see anything nasty in the toilet being, you just saw the toilet flushing. Um, but he, so he said, I'll take it out. Uh, and then he didn't. If you do any kind of a deal in Hollywood, until you're sitting at the opening day of the cinema and you're watching it in the cinema with another audience, then you know it's done. Welcome to Best Sellers. I'm Natalie Jameson. And I'm Phil Williams. And today we have another returnee. We do. There's like a theme for this yeah. latter part of the series. It's good though, isn't it? It means that we're not pissed anyone off. <laughs> Yet there's still time. There's always time. <laughs> yeah. We do. Don't see it's that a... as a challenge, by the no, way. I'm not. Don't worry. <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, Steve Kavanagh is our guest today, who you have read his work more widely than I have because he's very much based in the crime thriller detective drama world uh which you read way more voraciously than i do um but i really also, enjoy his other, writing other so writers much just kept telling me to read him so yeah. it was one of those uh it's like i've had it with mick heron and i've got to confess i've not read a mick heron yet i've watched mm. slow horses on apple which is fantastic Same. but i've not read the book but yeah it was certainly and we go into the harrogate story in this episode so i won't spoil that but it was one of those names that kept coming up and people were saying to you, you've not read a Steve Kavanagh. What's the matter with you? Get onto it. So 13 was my first one. Mm -hmm. The tagline for which is, uh, the killer's not in the dock, he's on the jury. And I'm like, oh, I'm in. Do you know what I mean? That's yeah, such a great yeah. tag for a book. And um, what Steve does, it alternates between standalones and his Eddie Flynn series, which is hugely popular. So yeah, that's how I got into his, his work really, was just other writers saying, you haven't read a Steve Kavanagh. So if you're in the same boat and you haven't read a Steve Kavanagh, it's fine. You can start with this one because it's a standalone kill for me, kill for you. And I really enjoyed quite early on in this episode, we do talk about taglines and those phrases that are used to sell a book or a film often and what's their purpose. And I love that. So here is Phil with the intro to Steve. Our guest today on bestsellers has plaudits from across the literary world, including Lee Child, who says, this guy is the real deal, trust me. And several other writers have been on this podcast and said to us about today's guests, he comes up with the best hooks ever. So we'll get him to explain what a hook is in a minute and how he comes up with them. And we're delighted to welcome back a returning guest to talk to us about his ninth novel, Kill For Me, Kill For You. It's Steve Kavanagh. How are you, Steve? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me on, Phil and Natalie. It's always a pleasure to be on oh. your show. So thank oh, you very much. Uh, no, I'm glad you're back. Let's talk about that hook thing first of all. Then, uh, well, I'll tell you what I'll do is I'll to illustrate the point. I'll read the hook off the cover. So there's no spoilers on this. You'll see this in any bookshop now if you go into it, right? And it says, "She will kill your worst enemy. All you have to do is kill hers." And your books repeatedly have these one sentence cells. 
How difficult is it for you to conjure those? How do you create them? Where are you when they come to you? Well, I, I don't create all of them. Um, sometimes, you know, the publishers create them or um, sometimes my wife, Tracy, uh, creates them. So the last book was called The Accomplice. And uh, the tagline for it was being married to a serial killer is murder. And that was my wife's idea. So um, and it, it works really well. So I like that. I like having like a tagline, something on the cover. So people will know instantly, oh, I, this is a, a, an interesting book. I, I, I can get the sense of what this book's about and what it offers. And usually it's something intriguing to help people pick the book off the shelf and get interested in it. So I, I like doing that and having that on my But Where does that come in your process? Does that come really early on? Does it come once the book's written? Does it vary per book? It does vary. So uh, for this one, it this came after I'd written the book uh, with uh, a book I wrote called 13. The whole idea of the book was the tagline, the serial killer isn't on trial, he's on the jury. So I thought, well, that's, that's a good idea for a book. You could just put that on the cover somewhere. And it was on the cover and a lot of people, you know, were, were hooked in. It's the hook, the reader. It's a big juicy hook to say, oh, that sounds interesting. I want to read that. Yeah, because I think it's that thing where uh, the tagline, it can always be like your writing prompt, right? So it's kind of fascinating to hear that these come at different stages. And then I wonder if you've gone back to any of the taglines and thought, I could have written a totally different book to that, actually. Yeah, you could. I, that's the thing is I don't plan any of my books. So I just have a very basic idea and it's something that intrigues me. And I think if the idea is good enough, you could write the book several different ways. There's a couple of different ways to write those that, that book and you would have a different book each time. Maybe some are better and some are worse, but I just try to, be, to do the best that I can with, with what I have. And that, that question, usually there's an implied question, like I wrote a book called 5050, and that's about two sisters on trial for the murder of their father. Uh, one of them uh, is guilty and one's innocent. And who do you believe? And that was on the cover. So that that gives me a lot to play with. And there's different ways to write it. But if, if that's strong enough, I can't go and I stick to it. Then I usually I can't go far wrong. But I also think with that, it's kind of um, it's an interesting point, right? Because often I think taglines can be a bit dismissed or certainly like when they're on blockbuster films, they can get ridiculed quite a lot. But that key thought that actually anybody who reads that tagline may has their own very specific idea of what they think it's going to be. And then the book that you've written is pretty much guaranteed to always surprise them because it won't be what they had in that in their head because you could have gone so many ways with that tagline. So actually, they are good. Oh, thanks very much. Yeah, <laughs> they, well, they, they, they help. They help keep me focused. And mm. hopefully they, they, they help and intrigue the reader before they've even opened the book. You know, um, so hopefully if we get the the right title, the right tagline, the right cover, all working together to tell a bit of a story while the book's sitting on the shelf, that that really helps. Well, what I'm interested in is you just said to Natalie that you don't plan your books yet. The other thing you're famous for, Steve, apart from these hooks, are your twists. Almost every book I've read of yours has got at least one. This one's got a couple. So how do you incorporate the right twist if you don't plan them out? Well, you can, there's a couple of different ways to do it. You know, um, some I'll have a, an idea possibly for a twist before I start. Um, other times it just comes up organically. I stop every now and again when I'm writing and go back and see what I've got. And I'll have the idea for a, for a twist there or there's something I could do. 
So it doesn't, they don't, twists don't have to be completely planned out. They can happen. Plus, when you're writing a book, you kind of have a time machine. So at any point, I can, if I get an idea, I can go back, do a little bit of groundwork to bleed that in. Um, and you know, I'm doing multiple, multiple drafts. And again, I'm very lucky. Sometimes my wife comes up and she came up with a great twist for, for one of the twists in this book, of which there are many, mm. you say. So mm. I'm very lucky in that, in that this whole process and I have the time to write it. I can. I'm look. The thing is, I'm looking for it. If there's something there I can do to surprise the reader, then great. So much the better. And so when the reader reads the book for the first time, it all looks meticulously planned, but it hasn't really been planned. I've been feeling my way slowly, and I create the false impression that I knew what I was doing all along. So obviously, this is your process, but. Can you answer honestly when you're writing and not planning and then a brilliant idea comes to you that you then know you've got to go back, as you say, and do the groundwork and seed it throughout and change probably quite a lot on the way? Is it a dual thing of like, that's amazing? And then like, ah, now I've got to do so much work. Well, not really. Usually there's very little work uh, involved in it. It could be adding in a couple of things. Um, But I I very rarely have to rewrite Hmm. anything in my books. Um, the biggest I, I did a couple of big biggish rewrites for this one, and I had to do a couple of big rewrites for a book I call I wrote called Twisted. But other than that, it's pretty much adding stuff in. It's the seed of the idea comes from what I've written already, even though I maybe didn't know what what it was, uh, which is very hard, which is very strange. I've heard mm. Lee Child describe it a wee bit as he was a producer in Granada TV, and he did a show called Ready Steady Cook. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah. It was like you would have Anthony Royal Thompson and somebody else. There would be a Green Tomatoes and the other one, I can't remember, was a Red Peppers or something. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, and <laughs> uh, somebody from the audience would come in with a bag of stuff and they would have like a cauliflower, a banana and a bar of chocolate. And the poor chef had to come up with something from it, uh, some kind of dish. And then the audience voted which one was better. So when I'm reading back on what I've written, I'm looking for a banana there, which I can turn into something else that no one expected later on. So uh, yes, as long as you have that in your mindset, usually there's something there you can do without too much adjustment. So how much can we say about this then? How far? I mean, the tagline does a pretty good (laughs) job actually of setting it up. Although, um, again, I hope this isn't a spoiler, but we can't. I think I looked... And I was 90 pages in before we get to that transaction. So there's a fair bit else going on rather than just that you kill for me, I kill for you thing. And you constantly reference strangers on a train as well, which I think is is probably the originator of that idea. So is this a homage yes. to that? It is, yeah. Um, I remember there's a Patricia Highsmith wrote a book about suspense writing, which is really good. I would recommend it to all writers. Um, and in that, she sort of talks about uh, Strangers on a Train, her first novel, and says that she was never really very happy with it. And certainly her other books are maybe more psychologically complex. And she definitely went up a level with a talented Mr. Ripley. But it's a brilliant idea. She also mentions that the idea of people swapping murders she got from a short story that she'd read. And then she took it for her own for Strangers on a Train. And the basic idea is two people meet by chance and they each want to kill someone. And they said, well, look, if I kill this person, this person's dead, I'll be arrested, I'll be interviewed because people know I hate this person. Well, what if I had an alibi and you kill that person for me and then I'll kill the person that you want 
because uh, there's no relationship between me and this other victim. It's totally random. No one knows we've even met or we even know each other. So it's a brilliant premise. And I thought there's lots more you can do with that. So mindful of, of Highsmith and Hitchcock's own uh, uh, film version of Strangers on a Train, which is different from the book, um, I thought, well, I can try and do my own version of that. And of course, I mentioned, um, you know, Patricia Highsmith and Hitchcock in it. Uh, and this book is kind of an homage to Hitchcock. There's a few stories in the book. The first is Amanda. And when we first meet her, she has lost um, her family. Um, uh, her, her child was murdered and the police know who did it, but they can't prove it. Uh, the other narrative is uh, a police officer called Faro, um, who has been helping uh, Amanda and has been investigating this murder. And the third narrator uh, is a lady called Ruth, who kind of has an, a pretty good uh, life. She's newly married. Things are going pretty well. And then something terrible happens to her, a horrendous crime. And Faro is investigating that crime as well. He's the kind of the link between the two characters. But we follow Ruth's journey on what happens to her after that crime. Um, and the Ruth part of the story is also inspired by a Hitchcock short, um, which, but I'm not going to say what it is because it might give it away slightly. Oh, right, okay. But I sort of took that and did my own version of that and changed it radically. Um, so the whole thing is a bit of a, a homage to Hitchcock. But in terms of the strangers on a train, Amanda meets someone. Amanda has to go to group therapy for her bereavement. And she meets someone in the group who also can't deal with the fact that their child has been lost. And they have the she has the idea then of what if, what if we swap murders? What if I kill the person who murdered your child and you kill the person who murdered my child? And uh, in, in the grand scheme of things, you know, not everything goes exactly according to plan. And so now you've told us that much, are you able to explain, without giving any spoilers, why this is one of only two books that you've written that required such a hefty rewrite? Um, that's it's mo it's mostly the last sort of third of the book, right? Okay, that I I need to. So yeah, I I had written this and my wife read it and says no, it's it's not working. Um, why don't you try this, this, and this? And I and I knew kind of initially that's the way to do it, but I didn't think I could pull it off. So I had a lot of thinking to do and then rewrote the last third and she was much happier with it. So that's always a good a, a good thing. If Tracy's happy with it, she's a great reader. Um, that, that gives me a good, strong foundation going forward. So shall we hear a little bit of it? Because I'm only doing this to stall my own brain because there's so much I want to ask you about this book and I'm so wary of not giving anything away. So if you've got a passage <laughs> to read and then I'll reset my brain and it'll all be good. Great. I'll just read a wee bit just from the start of the book and I'll give you a flavour of it. Chapter one, Amanda White lifted the lid from the electric baby bottle steriliser and stared inside at the 22 caliber revolver. It looked like the gun was sweating, its steel frame and barrel beaded with balls of hot condensation, the steam rising gently from the base. Turning away, she found her soft leather gloves, put them on and carefully lifted the weapon clear. The gun had to be cleaned today. No fingerprints, no tracers of her DNA. Last night, she had the idea of using the sterilizer to remove any trace of her from the weapon. It seemed fitting somehow that one of Jess's things should have a part in this. 
She was surprised that the sterilizer still worked. It hadn't been used since Jess's first birthday when she'd switched her on the sippy cups. She and her husband, Louis, had decided to keep the sterilizer, though, in case Jess ever had a baby brother or sister down the line. None of that could happen now. And that's all we'll do. That's just a little snippet. <laughs> I mean, the first line of that, I was going to read anyway. I want to, I'll just reread that because when I read that, I thought this is almost as important as the hook. And I want to know, Steve, how long these take you. So Amanda White lifted the lid from the electric baby bottle sterilizer and stared inside at the 22 caliber revolver. And straight, that line tells you so much. And it's such a short, concise sentence. Yeah. How difficult is it for you to do that? I spend a lot of time on my first lines. Um, I read a thing by Stephen King who says he spends, like Stephen King is one of the most prolific yes. writers, you know, working today. That guy is amazing, you know, uh, even in his later years, uh, he is still producing incredibly long books, brilliant books, but, you know, very regularly. So, but he will spend, you know, sometimes up to a week or two weeks with the first line. So it's, it's that important. So I, I normally take usually a couple of days to come up with something. And normally it's an image. And I thought, I mean, this, this book is really about, I wanted to be psychologically real. What would it take for an ordinary person to want to kill someone? And uh, I thought that the idea of the image of a gun, a revolver sitting in a baby bottle sterilizer, we've all seen these sterilizers before, but it's a great juxtaposition to have a gun sitting in one of them. And what would that look like? And that's probably how an ordinary person might, you know, clean a gun of traces of DNA. I'll just put it in a sterilizer. Um, and uh, that, that was a very strong image to me and it seemed to sum up so much in the books. You said that with quite but, a lot of knowledge, Steve. Uh, yeah, well, you know, <laughs> I, I do have a wee bit of knowledge about how to sterilize things and what works. I do a lot of research. But um, that, yeah, that image was good to me. I, I think I read a thing by Martin Amos, who's who's brilliant, uh, a brilliant critic uh, as well as, as a brilliant writer. Um, uh, God rest him, he passed away this year. But he said, you, you should re treat the reader like a guest and you're the host. And you welcome them in. You give them a comfy chair, nice wine. Tell them that they're there. They make them comfortable. And relaxed, so they're no early on. They're going to have a, a lovely evening, and I, I like that idea. So that's what I try to do for my readers. It's cool. It's really cool. Um, I haven't heard that uh, bit of advice before, but it's it's also quite uh, comforting to hear that you do. You, would you say you still seek out those nuggets of wisdom from other writers? Do you still read around quite a lot about how other authors write and and their recommendations for it? I do. I'm, I'm always constantly learning. And that might be a thing from from being a lawyer. You know, when you're a lawyer, you do have to do a certain amount of hours every year of like love learning, going to classes, making sure you're still up with with all the developments in the law. But I always did more than that. I'm always interested and curious. and I like to see and learn from how other, other writers do it. So I read whatever writers write about writing. I've done a lot of the master classes that are available online. Um, and I, I always think that because I'll pick up something that's brilliant that I've never thought mm -hmm. of that I can use. I'm always trying to be better the, the books, the books I write. I want the, the, the next one to be better than the last one. So I think you know, I learn a lot from reading fiction as well. But I also seek out stuff. And, and sometimes you'll get something brilliant that you can 
you can try. Uh, it may not work as well as something another writer has done, but I, I always like to do that. A moment ago, you said about how you wanted to really analyze what it would take to make an ordinary human being kill someone. And uh, I noticed, having read a lot of your books, and this is only a, a personal view, so you might tell me that you don't feel the same, but I noticed that there's quite a lot of violence, quite a lot of bloody violence in this, baseball bats, axes, bottles over the head, chloroform, more perhaps than in other books. Is that because you're exploring that theme? Is that why that's there? Is it, is it kind of what's it got to take to drive someone who doesn't have a disposition to kill to up their anti-levels that much? Yeah, with, with this book in particular, um, with the the Eddie Flynn books, there's there's probably there's more action I would say in the Eddie Flynn books. Yeah. So, um, you know, uh, and that's a that's different from showing violence. Uh, in this one, there is more violence now. I I tend not to show any violence against women. You won't read, pick up one of my books and find a passage of of great violence for from someone against a woman. Um, if there is about to be violence, or that violence is there as part of the story, either I'll cut away before it starts, or you'll hear well there was something that happened, but you won't you won't ever see it because I don't believe in in sensationalizing violence against vulnerable people that way. So there is some action in this, there is some violence, but the violence in this book is particularly different from other things I've written because it's messy. Uh, it's, you know, things don't go according to plan. It's it's much more real than any violence I've, I've written before. Um, so it's, you know, I wanted someone to get the idea of, of what happens when violence occurs, that this isn't something that, that goes according to plan. It's not like a Hollywood action thing. Mm -hmm. You punch someone and they fall down. It's this is what real violence looks like. But again, I'm always sensitive to this. So um, I never, ever want the reader to be repulsed by anything that's happening. I want them to be involved in it um, uh, and to see what it's like. So, uh, yeah, there, and again, usually it's 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 someone who is the, the hero who is trying to perpetrate something or something happens to them while they're defending themselves. I don't ever show violence against vulnerable people that's really it? interesting because i wonder if then it felt that felt more real to me than you as you say the eddie flynn books where their action sequences they're like movie sequences it's yes. make-believe yeah whereas here it feels a lot more perhaps psychologically inflicting it is yeah and uh that, that that's exactly what i wanted to show you know these are none of these people involved in this book are particularly skilled at doing anything they're not skilled they're not fighters they're not killers they're ordinary people who have just been drawn into violence. And we see um, how, you know, how awful that is uh, and how they feel afterwards, you know, and a lot of this is about the aftermath of violence and the trauma that it causes to people and how they deal with that. And some people never want that type of violence to happen to someone else. And that's why they act. And with other people, you know, they feel hurt and they want other people to hurt the same way they do. So there's a lot more psychological nuance in this book than than there is perhaps in, in some of the Eddie Flynn books. I think it is really interesting because I said to Phil when I was reading this that there were a couple of passages where I did find quite uncomfortable to read, but it's getting that balance between it has to be a degree of uncomfortable, otherwise it's too glossy and yeah. A similar in a similar way to you like I don't like those stories where 
you know, you're kind of enjoying the violence in any way. Like I didn't enjoy the violence, but I think that was the point. I was not supposed to enjoy the messiness you're not supposed of to it. Enjoy it, but it's getting that point where okay, this is real, yeah, and it's messy. But it, you know, um, for example, it, the most violent scene in the book is is probably a scene between two men. Mm-hmm. So I'm very careful not to show any perpetr- uh, perpetrations of of violence against women, um, which you do see in some books. And particularly, there's no sexual violence in this book, and there's no violence shown against children of anything like that, or or pets. You know, there's no dogs or cats get murdered in this <laughs> in this novel. So I am very careful with how it's done. Yes, it's there for a psychological reaction, um, but it's no worse than uh, watching Psycho or Silence of the Lambs or something like that. And I, I sort of particularly looked at Psycho because that was made in the 60s while there was censorship in Hollywood with things you couldn't see, um, which is why in the shower scene in Psycho, you never see the knife you know, penetrating anyone. You get the impression that it's happened, but you don't see it. Um, interestingly, the, the big problem that Hitchcock had with the censors in Psycho was he showed a flushing toilet and they didn't, well, they objected to that and said, absolutely no way. Can you show a toilet being flushed? And you didn't see anything nasty in the toilet. No, being, no, you just no. saw the toilet flushing. Wow. Um, but he, so he said, I'll take it out. Uh, and then he didn't and, and left it in. <laughs> and and there were so many reels printed. The, uh, the company didn't want, the censors didn't want to take the risk of shutting down the whole movie and suing. Uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> he just did it anyway, but it shows you the time. The you know the times they weren't bothered about about much else. Also, he made that movie in black and white, um, whereas most films are in that time were in color, uh, and he did it particularly in black and white so that the blood would not be as as visceral because there uh, is you see blood there, right? But it's it's more psychologically nuanced. That's an interesting trick to, and when you talk about that, I was thinking about Reservoir Dogs, where everyone talks yes. about the famous scene of the ear coming up, but you never actually see the ear cut off. That's correct. But, but your brain's filling in the gaps for you. You're, you're filling in the gaps. And what is in your brain is often much more violent than something you see on the page. Yeah. And I do that a wee bit too in my books. Um, you know, there's not a, there's not great descriptions of, of terribly awful things. Um, so, yeah, because the reader can create much something much more horrific in their mind than, than anything I can write. And where did this theme of wanton revenge come from then that, that fuels that violence? It's, that wasn't your area of law, was it necessarily? You didn't do kind of big criminal law, did you? Oh, yeah, well, I did. did. Um, I did as well as doing a lot of civil rights law. I did a lot oh, of yeah. criminal law as well. So I have... Um, hefty, hefty cases like murder and stuff. I have been involved, yeah, in, in those types of cases. Oh, I didn't know that. Forgive me. The one, the one thing with my firm at the time uh, is that we had agreed early on between all of, all of the lawyers, we were never going to represent someone because uh, we were defense lawyers, we were never going to represent someone that we thought was dangerous and put them right. back in the street. Right. And, and we turned down lots of cases. Um, uh, uh, whereas other lawyers perhaps wouldn't and would have just thought, well, that's, that's a great payday doing that case. Everyone deserves a defense, whereas we didn't and turned down lots of work. Uh, so I suppose the idea of revenge, this, I mean, it's, it's, it's a theme which you'll see throughout all of my books is um, the problem with the justices. And what happens when people don't get justice? And that's why, you know, Eddie Flynn, the main character I write about is a con artist. He's the most, if you like, you know, morally dishonest man in the whole justice system. But he helps balance 
that uh, biased system in favor of you know the innocent man or the innocent person um and, in, and that makes him perhaps morally superior to, to everyone in the entire system and that, i like exploring that so this is again what happens when there is no justice and how do you deal with that because i have as well as doing civil rights work and criminal work i've represented and helped families who have had you know people murdered and maybe haven't felt as if they've got justice for that and in some cases never did and that's an incredible thing to to try and deal with and i was interested in the reactions and how people do deal with that um but again all of my books are exploring all these themes but the main thing is entertainment i want someone to pick up my book to be gripping it and grip with tension and you know, surprise and entertain. So it's trying to keep it all on that sort of Hollywood level, if you like. Whereas you can still explore some things, but I like to keep the pages turning and keep the reader entertained. So do you still dabble in the law in any capacity outside no, of the writing? No. I, 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 Are you I, tempted I, to? Um, You know, sometimes, like I, I was seeing a friend there the other day who's still a practicing lawyer and I, I sometimes you get the idea, oh, I'd like to, you know, go and do that. Or, you know, it's an intellectual challenge, the law as well. Um, but no, I'm, I'm quite happy uh, being a full-time writer. And I haven't, I've practiced law in four years, so I'm, I'm well out of it now, thankfully. You talked yeah. about the, um, you've mentioned Eddie Flynn. So just for the uninitiated, Eddie's one of your recurring characters. And this book is very much a standalone what was the the logic for you in deciding you wanted to do that rather than returning to a a, a recurrent series? But the, but this is in Eddie Flynn's world, right? Because there's a little little Easter egg for fans of that. There is a little Easter egg. Um, there is a character who appears in lots of the Eddie Flynn novels. He is mentioned here. He doesn't appear, but he's he's mentioned in the book. Um, yeah, I like uh, occasionally I like doing standalones, and again, part of what you were saying, Natalie, is I like learning from from other writers. Writers here better than me. I try to learn from. So one of my great heroes is is Michael Connolly. Um, Phil and I have you know, both talked yeah, to, you know, yeah. and Michael will write the Bosch series, but every now and again he'll go off and do something else, something new, and that will help bring in more readers to him because they think if they like the Lincoln Lawyer or you know the Poet or one of his Jack McAvoy books. Mm. That they enjoy that, they might go and turn them turn around to a Harry Bosch. So I like doing that. And I think doing a standalone, you learn something. You're 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 exercising a different set of skills, perhaps. And it, I I hope what I learn from writing a standalone will make the Eddie Flynn books better. Um, so that's that's why I do it. And and I enjoy doing it. And again, I think this this is a perhaps a slightly different type of book than the Eddie Flynn books. So I'm hoping if people enjoy this, they'll maybe pick up another one of mine. Well, although I call it standalone, and if you tell me what I'm about to say is too much of a spoiler, I'll nick it out. Okay. But okay. although you call it a standalone, Steve, I felt there's scope with the way the story concludes that it yeah, could I was go somewhere. Yeah, you were. Yeah. So yeah. there could be another book. If you wanted to, do you, do you know where to. we are without overstating? I know it? exactly where we are. Um, I don't know. There are some. There are certain characters, you know, the main characters in this whose story kind of can, you know, naturally ends. But yes, there are some characters who could, you know, you could take forward. So I have thought about that. Uh, I'll never rule anything out. There is for the Waterstones edition. There is an, an additional short story which I wrote for Waterstones. Um, right. It's called the Lobster Shift. And that features Detective Farrow, 
Um, and it's just a short story about him on a lobster shift. The lobster shift is the night shift um, uh, in the New York Police Department. That's what they call it. And no one quite knows where this phrase came from. There's a couple of different theories which I explore in the short story. So there you are. If you want to know where that phrase, the lobster shift, comes from, you'll have to pick up the Waterstones edition of the short story. But, but that's not linked to um, the main story. No, it's a complete standalone right, right, story, a short story in that, but it does feature Detective Farrow, um, who, who we follow throughout this book. So just presumably that is something that uh, certain book chains like Waterstones encourage authors to do so that people buy from their bookshops rather than buying at a discounted rate from other maybe online retailers, perhaps. Well, I, I don't know. Um, I was very pleased to be asked. Um, and my agent, John Wood, was was very pleased I was asked as well because he really likes Farrow. Um, and he was a very interesting character to write. He um, he has a nickname in the department of St. Jude, uh, and St. Jude is the patron saint of hopeless cases. So he's the type of, of cop who just he won't let anything go. And he will try his best and carry cases for years to try and solve them. And he also he suffers with his back um, very like bad, <laughs> uh, like you will. And he, he can take medication, which will ease the pain. But if he takes medication, it kind of dulls his brain, dulls his senses. So he doesn't take it. He takes it maybe in the morning and then is supposed to take it in the afternoon, but doesn't. So he kind of suffers and he does kind of, it's the metaphor of him carrying these cases with him all the time, perhaps on his back. Uh, and not causing him real pain, but him choosing to do that because he wants to be at his best for people and he feels that duty. There's a great line in the book where he says, I'm no better than any other detective. I'm just relentless or something like that. I just don't give up, he says. He just doesn't give up. And he reminded me, um, when I read that, I had Al Pacino's character from Heat in my head. <laughs> hey, that's good. That's good. Uh, yeah, there are certain policemen like that, and they know that it's the real detailed work that will solve cases and close cases. Um, it's not these fascinating insights. It's a lot of it is running down all little loose ends, which maybe people might gloss over, but he takes very seriously. Um, so, yeah, he was a fascinating character to write about, uh, as it's the first real detective I've written about. I've written about what you know, one before, um, but he was he was a, a really interesting character to to get to know. And what was it about the setting of New York for this one as well? Is it just continually a place that you love, that you're fascinated by, that you get to go back and visit and do research trips if you're writing a new book? Because you could have set a standalone anywhere. Yeah, I, I love New York. I've written most of my books are set in New York. But uh, it seemed like the perfect place for this book. Because mm -hmm. one of the things this book deals with is the fact that some of these characters are, are very much alone and feel very lonely and isolated. And I like the juxtaposition of, and, and, and I think this is true, you can be in one of the most populated cities in the world and still be completely alone. Um, and there's a line in the book that there's there's comfort in the loneliness of others. So do you know there may be someone else on this escalator in this elevator with me that I don't know who maybe also is feeling lonely as well? Um, so that that was great. Plus, you know, New York is is a great city for a thriller, any type mm -hmm. of thriller. And I knew the city well, and I I wanted there were certain places that I thought would be great for certain scenes. So there's there's a there's a big scene in Grand Central Station. 
and uh, some of the neighbourhoods I know quite well are, are, are very good to write about. So it, uh, plus the pace of the city really helps with, with the pace of the book as well. So did you go back to New York while you were writing this one? Is that something no. you kind of built into your process? No, I wrote this book over COVID. Mm. Um, uh, I finished it, yeah, finished it, yeah, during COVID. So um, I've been back since uh, and I've been down that escalator in Grand Central Station um, to see if I'd got it all right. Uh, and I, <laughs> thankfully I had. I was going to say, did you go back with enough time to be able to change anything? If you uh, yes, to? yes, <laughs> I did. But uh, no, th thankfully everything was everything was okay. I didn't need to make any changes. So you mentioned a while ago um, your agent. And have you had a period of transition in your career? Do you have a new agent, new publisher? And, and what kind of difference does that make to your career as an author? Oh, it's a massive difference. I'm with John Wood and I in Rogers Coleridge and White. And John published my first novel when he was a publisher at Orion. Ah. So I've known John for, for years. John published Michael Connolly, James Lee Burke, Harlan Coben. Broke Harlan Coben out in the UK. So he's he's fantastic for story and, and editing. He's a genius and lovely man. Love John with the bits. And there's a big acknowledgement to John at the end of this book. So, yes, and I've moved from Orion to Headline. There was an auction with um, different publishers bidding for the rights for this book in the UK. So I went with Headline because they were they were really uh, impressive in what they would do with the book. Um, editor there. Can I just pause you at that point to say, because there's a, I don't know if this, I don't want to gender this, but sure. I love this, the thought of an auction, but I also think I would find it incredibly socially awkward. Do you? when it's happening and when you're deciding and making those decisions, because you know a lot of those people now, or you're, you know, shielding yeah. from people, is it awkward or is it just business? I think everyone involved knows that this is a business decision. You know, it's nothing, no decisions are made like this uh, on a personal basis. Um, and for me, it, you know, it wasn't, it's, it's about getting the right relationship with the, with the publisher as well. Um, so uh, yeah, no, it was uh, Toby at, at, at headline. Um, Toby Jones is my new editor and, yeah, well, it was all very exciting at how it went. Um, and there's been multiple auctions now for my, my books uh, sort of all over the world. So I think I'm translated now into like 32 languages. Wow. Um, and when I went with Rogers, Coleridge and White, they, they did about 23 or 24 foreign deals for me within the first six months. Wow. So it's been it's been fantastic being with them and the whole team there is fantastic, uh, and uh, yeah, there's a new publisher there, a new publisher in the states. So I'm with Atria, uh, Simon Schuster. Um, so I have a new American publisher as well. So it's and again that was an auction too. So it's been it's all been it's been life changing being with John Wood. And I don't want this to be a lazy question because it's the kind of question we could ask any writer who comes on. But there were there were several moments when I was reading this, Steve, when I thought this needs to be on the big screen. Am I going yes. to get to see that happen? Hopefully so. Um, I can't tell you anything about it because John Wood, lovely man that he is, <laughs> would beat me up. But I'm not allowed to say anything. But uh, yes, um, all those that deal has been done, shall we say? But all I right, can't okay. tell you who it, who it is or anything right. about it. That and can I just done. clarify when you say that deal is done? Because there's a big thing we've we've learned from writers. Sometimes yeah. your book can get optioned. Yes. And that means people say that the deal's done, but it never sees the light of day. So is that more than yes. this? Is this this is definitely going to happen? There's a director attached, it's going to get yeah. shot. Uh, and, until you're set, it does well put it, let me put it this way. Until yeah. you're if you do any kind of a deal in Hollywood, yeah. until you're sitting 
at the opening day of the cinema and you're watching it in the cinema with another <laughs> audience, then you know it's done. Right. There are films in the can that have never been released. So uh, uh, that, let me put it that way. All I can say is I, I don't know. No one knows, but I'm, I'm hopeful and, and I'm excited about it. And again, apologies if this is also an obvious question, but would you, and I can't remember if I asked you this last time you were on or not, but is film writing something that you're interested in learning more about too? Yeah, I mean, I, I did I did write some screenplays when I was uh, younger. Um, uh, so yes, if the opportunity arose, uh, it's something I would be interested in. But my main thing is I like writing novels. I, I love that. So if I did any bits of screenwriting, it would be very much sort of on the side because uh, my time is very much devoted devoted to my books and my readers. And that's what I love. Um, so, But I would never rule it out. And also, Steve, you don't want that situation where we had Mark Billingham on recently and his brand new novel only came mm -hmm. about because after 18 drafts of a screenplay, he got tired of trying to write it for telly. I mean, and that was a commission. They commissioned him. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, that sounds that sounds crazy to me. That's uh, see, all the all, all this crazy stuff happens in Hollywood, which would just drive me insane. Um, uh, so I'd be very, I'd love to do an Aaron Sorkin type deal. Um, Aaron Sorkin gets a deal and he gets half his money when he signs the contract, and then he writes a screenplay, and it's in the contract. No one's allowed to change anything, and then he submits it, and he gets the other half of his money. So he gets two million dollars to sign the contract, another two million dollars when he puts the script in, and if the movie's made, he gets another million dollars, and that's that's been widely reported. So yeah, so someone's going to do an Aaron Sorkin type deal. Yeah, I'll jump at that. Right. Not yeah. <laughs> And uh, I know that, um, so we are talking to you uh, <clears throat> and you're about to head to Harrogate, the crime festival that happens, crime writing festival that happens every year. Uh, and I know that it's a particularly amiable bunch of crime thriller writers in the UK that you all seem to have really good relationships with each other. Is it sort of universally, universally acknowledged now that production companies in TV and film actively scout any book that gets released for their next big idea their next big thing because that's where the kind of main breeding ground for ideas is i don't know if it's the main breeding ground um certainly there's a lot you know there's a there's a lot of books get optioned um and there's a lot of you know more places for for uh for books to be you know, translated into tv shows or movies and there's lots of streaming services uh and they're all crying out for quality content um, so yeah, I mean, a lot of them do uh, go to writers now, uh, but I mean, it depends. Um, uh, certainly, you know, I, I think certainly think it would be a great thing for more writers to be involved, those actual writers to be involved in TV. Um, mm -hmm. One of the one of my favorite TV shows uh, of all time is The Wire, which I absolutely love. But as well as having you know you know great uh, two screenplay writers uh, on that book. Or on that show, you had Dennis Lehane, George Palacanos, Richard Price, uh, as well as David Simon, all working together on that. There's a lot of novelists working on that show, uh, which is highly unusual. Uh, and that's where you know that's where Dennis Lehane, Lehane learned how to write a screenplay. Is working. we had Dennis on a couple of weeks ago, and he said exactly mm -hmm. that, Stephen. He said that when he first was on the wire, only forty percent, maybe max, of his stuff was getting through. Yeah. And so he would ask why, and then he would learn, and then it would go to sixty percent, and then eighty percent. He said he felt he was learning a brand new craft all over, even though by that stage I think he'd done six or seven novels. 
Yeah, it's very different. Your writing for the screen is very different. Everything has to be very much visual, even though there's a lot of great dialogue in the wire. Um, the best thing you can do is, is visual. So that's that. You know, it's certainly a fascinating craft and something I'm, I'm I'm interested in. But my primary thing is is the novels. So if it's something I could do, maybe a wee bit now and again on the side, great. Natalie, do you so know the, you mentioned Harrogate? Mm, do you know that's how yeah. I know Steve? Yeah, we met at Harrogate. We met at Harrogate, right? And, and uh, various uh, every writer that I bumped into kept saying, "And you'll be doing Steve Kavanagh, won't you?" I said. No, I don't know who Steve Kavanagh is. Tell me. And they go, oh, you've got to do Steve Kavanagh. Steve Kavanagh, he's right up there. He's blah, blah, blah. You can't miss him, right? Well, you'll see him here. You can't <laughs> miss him. I kept getting told, right? So I thought, well, I wanna, who am I looking for? And then, now tell me if this is true or not, Steve. This is my first ever Harrogate Nat, right? Then a rumour mm. goes round that quite late one night, there's been some interlopers into the kind of communal tent where all the writers drink. And they were unsavoury types. And the rumour was that security couldn't deal with them, but Steve Kavanagh did, and one of them ended up in a bin. Right. <laughs> is, is this true? It didn't end up in a bin. Okay. Um, see, this is a problem with, with something that happens, you know... When you've Harrogate, got writers everywhere. I love Harrogate. Harrogate's a lovely, <laughs> you know, middle-class English, sleepy English town, and there's a loads of lovely middle class, sleepy English people who go to it, uh, and there are crime writers who make things up for a living. So uh, yes, there were um, a drunken uh, people who came in and started a bit of stuff, and one of them attacked Mark Billingham, and I put him in a in a, in a rose bush on his bottom very delicately without hurting him and then his friends came and removed him uh but by the next day uh it was 20 marauding hooligans on horseback you know <laughs> with, with spears and swords because that's the way things go so it was all very gent even genteel uh situation but completely blown out, blown out of proportion um but yeah Something something happened, but it was all it was it was nothing basically. But rumors <laughs> go around. Well, your legend grew anyway. And I was like, right, so now I've got to look out for this guy called Steve Kavanagh, who not only does everyone love, but clearly he's handy. <laughs> That's what I was told. Handy, yeah. handy, yes, you know, I, I, handy I, as opposed to handsy. Exactly. Well, yeah, exactly. An important um, distinction in this era. <laughs> there you go. I can put up IKEA furniture. There you are. <laughs> Um, Eddie Flynn, we need to ask you. Uh, people will not forgive me if I don't ask you when he's when's he back. Eddie will be back next year. I'm writing the next Eddie Flynn book now, uh, which I'm really enjoying. Uh, I can give you a very rough idea of it, and again, oh, yes, please. this might completely change. Okay, but I sort of a lot of, of of my work is I'm thinking, what's the worst thing that can happen? And I'm writing about a, a street in New York, which uh, is in, almost entirely populated by very high earners. It's a real millionaire's row, this little dead end street. You know, you have CEOs of tech companies in there. And there's a, a young girl who used to live on that street, but no longer does. Who does a lot of babysitting for them and cleaning and that sort of work. And uh, because they trust her, they feel like they know her. Her name's Ruby Johnson. The opening line of the book is there's something wrong with Ruby Johnson. And it's the idea of who is the worst person who could witness a murder. So when Ruby's going home one night, she sees someone in the street being murdered and she knows who the killer is. 
but Ruby doesn't call the police straight away. Uh, she has now a bit of knowledge and it's the idea of someone who is a wee bit like sort of Tom Ripley, who is the worst witness, uh, worst person you can ever be a witness to a murder. And she's going to use this knowledge that she has for her own purposes to cause as much havoc in this street as she can. So she accuses someone of the murder and Eddie has, has to represent them. Oh, wow. That sounds ace. I mean, yeah, yeah, exactly <laughs> the same. Have you got your hook line yet? Not yet. No hook line yet. No title either. Okay. Um, so we'll 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 see what happens. So when you when you say you haven't got a title when you're writing this, do you just call it Untitled Eddie Flynn? Untitled Eddie Flynn number eight. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. Uh, and you know what? It, it I, because I don't plot out a book. Uh, this might be the the first and last that anyone hears of it. It may all be thrown in the bin, uh, <laughs> but hopefully not. I'm 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 quite happy with where we are with it so far, and, and I'm really enjoying writing it. A couple of really good scenes with Eddie in it, uh, and some other characters here returning because um, he has a little group around him now. So I'm really enjoying writing this one. I think it'll be it'll be good. Hopefully, other readers. So the the headline of an article that I saw was that. I think it was only in February of this year, 2023, that this new four book deal with headline came through. And the yes. first of those is Kill For Me, Kill For You, which yes. is what we've been talking to you about today. And then so we know you're doing another Eddie Flynn. Do you know what the other two are or are they just taken on trust? I, I have an idea for another book, um, a standalone, but I might I might hold off on that for a while. Um, I think I'm going to go to two Eddie Flynn's now. Um, so the one I'm writing now. And another one next year so let's see how it goes and i maybe have the other standalone after that i don't know but i have the other the idea hit me straight away if that standalone and i'd be really excited to do it um if i can pull it off as it is a very high concept thriller type um idea so but i'm keeping it in my back pocket for now so when you signed that four book deal yeah. did you have to lay out what those four books were no uh wow no, I'm at the stage now um, where where publishers, um, God help them, uh, are have seen what I've done before and are quite trusting the fact that I might be able to do it again, or perhaps just hopeful. Mm. Um, so no, I didn't have to to set. Isn't that a great confidence boost, though? I mean, I'm sure you must be confident in your writing by now, anyway. But even so, what a lovely uh, thing. Well, I'm never confident in my writing, but I, I'm always questioning myself and trying to do better. If I ever have a day going, that was brilliant, love that, uh, then I know, oh, hang on, put the brakes on here and go back and look at that again. I'm always questioning myself. I'm always trying to make it better. I think that's what 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 fuels me, maybe. Um, Harlan Coben has a line that only bad writers think they're good. And I think there's something to that. Um, again, that's Harlan Coben's line. That's not mine. But um, no, I, I always question myself. For me, it's always never quite good enough. I'm sorry. I'm still trying to think of a tagline for that book. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what I was trying to do. Yeah, yeah. If you do, you email me, Phil. Okay. A tagline for that. I was playing with um, something around love thy neighbor, love thy friend, dead end, or something. Something like I don't know. Something around that. I don't know. We'll get. We'll get. Or neighbors become good friends. I was. Yeah. That's why I wear my brain. I think was. that's been used on the. Oh, yeah, <laughs> Australian. Australian. Play, on play on it. Yeah. Play on it. You know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, very good. Very, very, very good. Uh, right, we should get to recommendations. Then. Yeah. What else um, have you read, Steve? It doesn't matter, fiction, non-fiction, anything. What have you read that you can recommend to us? 
I'll give you a couple. Um, so uh, I loved Ruth Ware's latest book, Zero Days. Um, I thought it was fantastic. It was a brilliant high concept book about a lady who is kind of a security expert who tests big company security systems um, along with her partner. And what happens is her partner is found murdered and she becomes the main suspect. So it was a real roller coaster uh, thriller called Zero Days. I also love Shari Lapena's latest book, uh, Everyone is Lying. Um, I don't I think, think you're the second writer who's been on yeah. to recommend that. That keeps yeah, coming brilliant. up to us. It's brilliant. It's a real, you know, it makes you feel uncomfortable reading a book. Shari's just, for me, she's one of the best psychological film writers working today. I think she's fantastic. And also really lovely. And that's that whole juxtaposition. Oh, she's isn't lovely. It? Yeah. So you think, she's how is someone that lovely capable of something that psychologically turbulent? No, she's uh, she's so sweet. I've met, I've met Shari and her husband last year. Uh, and I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing her at, at Harrogate. Oh, she's fantastic. Um, and at the moment, I'm I'm reading a non-fiction Haruki Murakami's uh, novelist as a vocation, which is a collection of his essays. Uh, uh, so which I, I'm enjoying. Um, I'm also looking forward to. I've got a couple of great proofs here, so I'm looking forward to reading Alex Michaelides' The Fury, um, which is his latest one, and Gillian McAllister's latest one, just on the missing person. Yeah, those yeah. Are, my, are next up in my to be read books. So he did the Silent Patient, didn't he? I think is that that was Alex. Yeah. He did, yeah, which was a fantastic book. I love that. Julian's book last year, I thought was we did Julian for that, didn't we? I think or sitting on the radio, we did, and it was really yeah. good. That, if you could go back off. in time and stop a murder, you know, could you do it? And it's kind of yes. it's so unbelievable, and I'm really skeptical. So I was like, nah, that will never. And then as you read it, you're like, oh, you're making me believe this could be a thing. Yeah, well, that that's that's the mark of good writing, isn't it? Yeah, you know when you and that's you know, certainly something. That I have I have concepts which are still a bit um you know high concept but it's trying to get the details right to to draw the reader in that this could happen i've just sent a group message with my tagline for your book did you <laughs> okay did. it's too clunky but i've written if only one person witnesses a murder can you trust what she says she saw oh you know there might be something in that yeah. i'm gonna take a i'm gonna take a wee photo of that <laughs> something good i thought it was too i'm not too wordy that. i thought it was too too many words i might be able just to tweet that thoughts. i mean come on that was like just off the top awesome thank you very much <laughs> <laughs> you know what this is the best game we've ever played in the steve cameron's game <laughs> yeah, come back to us each time like just like email us like got it love it if you've steve, got a title so now, that's all i need Thanks for returning. We love that you're a returning guest. Yeah. And um, congratulations on what's clearly been a pivotal point in your career, but also the success that this book will guarantee. It's out today. Brilliant. Thank you so much indeed. It's been it's been lovely to come along and chat with you. I've really, really enjoyed it. Okay, I think we need to admit to everyone listening that we are in the privileged position because we don't want to ever spoil what you're going to read. But as soon as we hit stop on that recording with Steve Kavanagh, we were like, so can we just ask yeah. you about like we when this happened? And then when this yeah, happened, yeah, and yeah. when then this happened at the end, how did you come up with that? <laughs> yeah, that's um yeah, I mean you're right. We don't want you don't give anything away, do you, with any no. kind of work of art, really? I think, like, I'm, I'm at the time we we're recording this a few weeks ago. I'm waiting to see Barbie and Oppenheimer. I don't want to read any reviews. I don't want anyone oh, I've seen to them tell both. me. Anything. You don't want my review? No. No, I just can okay. see the joy in your face, so I know that we're going to be all right. Yeah, you're fine. 
Yeah, so the main thing, when you say, what about this, what about that, just for clarity, the, the book's really clear. So we're, we weren't clearing things up with Steve, but we were trying to work out where we should have guessed, you know what I mean? Where, at yes. what point should we have got it? And we didn't, neither of us got it. But I also, I think that if you did get it, I'd have been disappointed. I like not getting it. I like guessing and getting it wrong, don't you? That's the whole point. Yeah, absolutely. And being surprised. I mean, yeah. the the joy that I get from reading thrillers especially is, you know, if it's well written, as Steve's books are, that you you think you're guessing or he's kind of leading you down a certain path and then it'll suddenly do a U-turn. You're like, wait, what? Uh, and it's that kind of gasp of like, oh, I can't believe that just happened. That's so enjoyable. I mean, I, I do think sometimes, I mean, we've done it a couple of times on a few episodes way back when on this series where we did do a bit of a, a spoiler bit at the end and I wonder if people enjoy that or not so anyway, where did we do that so I did that because I had some specific questions to ask Andy Weir on Project yeah. Hail Mary yeah. and we did say in the oh, episode that we right. put we out did, yeah, okay did. if you haven't read it don't stop listen listening here that's right that's because he was really happy for us to do that wasn't he, he yeah. said yeah let's talk about it. yeah okay yeah, well, no one kicked off, did they? So maybe that was no, helpful. they don't. But so that's what I'm. I'm kind of curious whether that is something that people would like to hear more of once they well, have. Well, shall I tell you the only thing against it is yeah. in a different, in a slightly different field, but related. Mm -hmm. A number of people now that say to me, I say, "Oh, have you seen the trailer for Blah? That looks good." And they say, "Oh, the trailer's telling me the whole." Yeah, it's true. Film. Yeah, and some of these trailers now are nearly three minutes. Yeah, it's way too. Yeah, no, no. I'm not saying to like give it away. I'm saying. To have like a separate thing so that if you have read the have book questions. and you then have questions, ah, that hopefully we will have had okay, similar yeah, questions that I'm we can you, have then. So like a spoiler special. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm with you. Okay. That's a very interesting idea. Yeah. Especially with certain types of book like this book. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Little spoiler specials, yeah. additional 10 minutes maybe. Good thinking, Batman. Let's definitely look, let's look into that and see if we can get okay. some author approval to... You yeah. need the author on board, right? You do, yeah. And it, it would have to, it would have to be fully branded as spoiler special. But I think people are, are used to that now. There are other podcasts that do that for films and things. And exactly. yeah, do you think we'd have to delay it? So, so like for example, you put this Steve Cavanaugh one out, and then the spoiler special you do say in two months' time, and you give people a chance to read it. Yeah, maybe. Or you can still have it there, so if people read quickly. They just know that it is the spoiler special. But it's so. done separate, separate app, and it's no polluting yeah. the ears. There's no way no. you have to actively exactly. seek it out to listen to. Yeah. It. Very interesting. Hmm. I like that we just had a production meeting on the air. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> Got to mention so Kofi. <laughs> I was going to say, this seems like the perfect time for you to uh, remember <laughs> uh, the thing that I always forget. Okay. So uh, we've on Kofi now, which is a place where you can show your appreciation if you're able to and you would like to. You can buy us a metaphorical coffee at ko-fi.com slash bestsellerspodcast, kofi.com slash bestsellers podcast and it's ko-fi.com and also if you want to just leave us uh, a little message on there you can do that as well we, we check it fairly regularly not as regularly as i should but fairly regularly so um again if it's not um a donation as such or you just want to say what about this author oh i really love that episode blah blah you can reach us at ko-fi.com slash bestsellers podcast beautifully done and and your mission natalie jameson should you choose to accept it is to yes. learn all that and you can do it next time. <laughs> what do you reckon? Because I can tell now it's become like a stumbling block for you. It's almost like, yeah. it's like when a goal scorer goes seven games without a goal, it gets mm. harder to score. It's almost built up now, I think. That's what I feel. Has it built do up? Do you? Okay. Yeah. yeah. I think it's more that I just need to remember to have 
it written down somewhere easily oh, accessible okay. whereas okay. what i tend to do is go like oh i've forgotten again and then it will just be really boring me trying to find it so yes i will do so that would it be really um unbecoming of me to tell you that it's not written down anywhere when i do no it's fine because i remember lots of other things and everybody's brain works differently and that's just okay yeah good phew right then <laughs> happy reading <laughs> <laughs>